you know, there's a reason why a lot of these albums are psychedelic masterpieces. Yeah. Whether they realized it or not, at the time, they were trying to perform what was going on in their heads. Welcome to Discography, the podcast that gives Gen X music maniacs a chance to smell like teen spirit again by connecting with a brotherhood obsessed with rating the entire discography of every single artist and band that ever mattered. I'm your host, Dave Gebro, and with three new episodes each week, you're going to gain a comprehensive knowledge of an act's history and output in the time it takes to listen to one album. And in this episode, we'll be turning our spray cans on Dan Ephraim, executive producer of the Elephant Six Recording Company documentary. Coming up, we've got Robert Schneider from the Apples in Stereo rating everything he's ever done, and Will Hart from the Olivia Tremor Control rating everything they ever did. So don't miss out. Open up your listening app right now and subscribe. And for significantly longer, complete versions of all our shows, just go to patreon.com slash discography and subscribe. Even if you're not sure, just head on over there because it's finally completely free to become a basic member. Not interested in a full subscription, but you want the full version of this episode? Head over to the Discography Record Shop on our Patreon, where you'll find this and every other one of our classic back Patreon episodes, and all of them very affordably priced. And away we go then! Our guest today is a renaissance man in the truest sense of the term, except for the fact that he wasn't actually alive during the renaissance. Photographer, journalist, producer, curator, music supervisor, manager, and art publisher are just a few of this not very lazy guy's various designations. His photography can be found in publications such as the New York Times and Pitchfork, and his publishing endeavors include the Steve Keen Art Book, and more on that later. With nearly three decades in the music biz, this Grammy Project winning manager has lent his touch to approximately 100 albums whether in creative development, marketing, or collaboration. He served as producer for 2006's Call It Democracy and executive producer for the Elephant Six Recording Company, an incredible motion picture which offers an inside look at the legendary 1990s rock collective that launched Neutral Milk Hotel, the Olivia Tremor Control, the Apples in Stereo, and many, many other amazing bands. If you haven't yet had the pleasure of being introduced yet to the E6 universe, here's the cliff notes. Around 1985, a group of Louisiana high schoolers began experimenting with whatever random instruments and gear they could find, and influenced by psychedelia, with little to distract them, they birthed a musical revolution. It impacted me greatly on a personal level, along with pretty much everyone I knew at that time. So it's with arms thrown wide open that we welcome to the hallowed bell balconies of the Jan Wennerlist Discography Hall of Fame. Lads and ladies, it's Dan Ephraim. Wow, thanks for having me, Dave. I don't uh, I don't even know how I'll I'll live up to that, but um thank you for having me. You'll not only live up to it, you'll surpass it. I'll have to rewrite this intro and make it even more hyperbolic. 
I do want to say right out of the gate that I would have been thrilled like crazy just to have this conversation with you, but because of your integral nature within the world of the Elephant Six, what this begat is an entire month celebrating Elephant Six. And for that, I'll eternally be grateful. You know, you and I both are grateful <laughs> to the Elephant Six for sure. They're a great bunch, and I'm glad that you're doing a deep dive. It's going to be fascinating to listen to what everyone says. These are bands. I saw them all at the time. I remember seeing Olivia Tremor Control with uh, music tapes opening up in 19... I want to say 1995 at Great American Music Hall in San Francisco. I saw around that time Olivia Tremor Control again at Maxwell's in Hoboken, which is sadly not there anymore, and actually spoke with Bill Doss about the rock opera EP that I was making called Intergalactic Chump, the Super Dan Saga, made on a Tascam 4-track. And he was a beautiful enough human being to give me his address so I could send him a copy. You know, I was living and breathing it at that time. I'm guessing you were too, right? Well, yeah, right around that time is when I was also introduced to the Apples and to the um, Olivia Tremor Control. My first Elephant Six show was also the Olivia Tremor Control, and it was at a club here in, in, in New York, which was around and has been rebirthed, at least in space, at least as a venue. It was called the Pyramid Club. I went in to see them, I think based on just a single that I had heard, a seven inch during, I believe it was one of the conferences. It was CMJ or it was New Music Seminar. Or it was one of those two. And I walked into this cavalcade of psychedelia and just was absolutely blown away by it and i i'll never forget that 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 time when i uh was introduced to elephant six let me just say one thing before we dive into the meat and taters of this the format of the show is typically rating a discography but we are not going to be doing that today in lieu of that it's going to be less an interview than a conversation and sort of free floating in the way that hopefully will mirror most of the best stuff that came out of the elephant's in terms of aesthetic methods of producing something that's almost accidentally great. You know, this is going to be sort of a Jackson Pollock painting of a conversation. Tell me around that time in the early 90s, where were you? You know, give me a place and time vibe of what was going on in Dan Ephraim's world. I moved to New York City uh, approximately 1993, 94 to pursue the music business wholeheartedly. I had come here from Boston. Where in Boston? Alston and Cambridge. Where in Alston? Well, I lived in both LA, Lower Alston, which I'm sure... Obviously, you know, if you're asking specifically where I, I, I live. lived at 18 Pratt, I lived at 20 <laughs> Farrington, and I lived at 1412 Commonwealth Avenue. You were heading more toward uh, BC. Yes, correct. Right. Yeah. I didn't go quite, I didn't go quite that direction as often. In essence, I was right near Harvard Street, I guess it was called. You were near Marty's. Yes. And I was, I was also near Bunratty's. I was Bun near Bunratty's and Riley's roast beef. I can remember Deli House being there. Deli House is by Kemmore's. Oh, group. that's right. Deli, Deli House is Kemmore, but there's it twin seems donuts. totally there's... off topic to people. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but just so people who are not familiar with Alston, and, and by the way, your experience of Austin may be different from mine, but I feel like that was my favorite era of living subterranean while feeling like I was in a place 
that supported the subterranean mindset. I don't know if you had the same experience, like I said, but there were certainly a lot of locals around there. But anyone who wasn't like a local yokel type of inhabitant was a student who was more outre. So you had an alternative bookstore that was there called the Primal Plunge. That was on Brighton, right across from the Sunset Grill. There was, of course, Bun Ratties. And on the street, Harvard Ave, that Bun Ratties is on, there were stores that felt like they belonged there and then stores that felt like they were out of the Twilight Zone. It was uh, a definite mixed bag if you will and uh, it was a lot of, it, it was a lot of fun that area for sure um anyway i lived mostly in 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 alston and brighton and then and then eventually moved to uh cambridge inman square area so you're there and do you remember the first discovery of anything e6 related oh in in boston um i don't think i came across anything e6 in boston i was involved in the in the indie music scene, I've been fascinated with advocating for artists that I love of some sort since I was 14. So I was a young spirit trying to find my way into a career in the music business. And I did everything I could in Boston to do that. And I went to Boston in essence, because there was a scene that I appreciated, but I didn't find any E6 up there at that time. When I moved to New York is when I really discovered E6. And that really comes from not just the CMJ Music Conference or the New Music Seminar, but it also, I at the around the same time, I had met some of the people that had started spin art records and um, they had, you know, they became uh, close friends and uh, turned me on to some of the works that they were approaching working on. And so I was aware of the E6 a little bit. You know, the first introduction was the Olivia Tremor Control at the Pyramid Club. And then after that, it kind of, everything started to flood. I started to investigate, like a lot of people, once you get your toe in the water, you start to feel around and see like, oh, there's all this other stuff too. And it's equally cool and adventurous and I still haven't reached bottom. I mean, there's... Yeah, no. Well, exactly. I mean, it's impossible to. I mean, Adam Clare's book, Endless Endless, is is such a great book. And I recommend everyone check it out because it really has such depth to the Elephant Six story that as much as I love the Elephant Six recording company film, and I do, and I think everyone should see it, of course... But um, the book is is equally fascinating in very different ways. The list of things that you've done throughout your life. You are not only not an armchair dreamer, but you probably have daydreams quite frequently about being one who doesn't feel like <laughs> he has to find out if every single idea he ever has is one that will be workable. It feels redolent to me of my own state of affairs. Do I pursue the movie thing, the music thing, the book thing? The How do you know on any given day when you wake up or especially back when you hadn't actually done anything yet, but you were hoping to. How do you know where to put all your eggs? First off, I'd like to say I have daydreams about my nightmares. <laughs> you know, my my early life, of course, like like many of us, you know, is formative. I grew up in a very musical household. My dad was a professional violist for 64 years. Hmm. And my mom was a social worker. So in essence, I became the XY offshoot. I was you know, an advocate, a manager of bands. I, from the day I was able to get a radio show at a college radio station, uh, you know, I was able to get a radio show in high school at Vassar College 
in Poughkeepsie, New York, mm-hmm. and was always playing new things, trying out new music. And it just kind of went from there. So when you ask the question, like, how do I figure out what I'm doing next? I don't really know. I don't have an answer to that. I feel like I have been very lucky to have trusted myself enough that when projects land in my lap that I think I can help, that usually the ones that I'm the only one that can help on some level are the ones that I gravitate toward. That's not always smart. In some ways, it it does produce kind of a a lonely uh, environment at times because it's usually projects that need the most help. But it also means that theoretically, the most creativity could be attached to them because they might be so new in development where I could really roll up my sleeves and and, and, and help. I'd like to think of myself as helpful. You're an artist who steps up to the plate to help other artists. So I guess my question would be, do you feel like you've been served by Daniel Ephraim, who's done you the great good service that you provided for others? I'm learning. Yeah. I'm learning how to, how to be better to myself. I'm learning how to understand and go with and push through my own insecurities, my own uh, abilities even. I'm trying I'm really trying to do better by myself. When I started out, it was always about advocating for someone else and there is nothing wrong with that. That's you know, I'm very proud of 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 the projects I've worked on and I hope that most of them don't hate me. <laughs> <laughs> but some do. And that's fine. You know, that's what happens with creative enterprise. If you really believe in it and if you have an opinion, sometimes you're going to have differences of opinion and it's not going to work out. That's happened a number of times. To find out who both Dan and I have had our biggest all-time fallings out with right at this spot in the director's cut of this episode, you can purchase it quite affordably at the Discograffiti Record Shop located at patreon.com slash discograffiti slash shop. Hi, I'm Dave Gebro. I threw my career as a licensed hearing instrument specialist in the trash, sold my house, and moved to the East Coast with my wife and four-year-old son in order to focus on making the ultimate podcast for music obsessives thrive. Now I need your help. Although Discograffiti is rated in the top 2% of all podcasts globally, the economics of this thing are tricky. Becoming a member of Discograffiti's Patreon gives you access to over 100 more exclusive episodes. And moving forward now, every Sunday for only $5 a month as a private first class, you get our new weekly show by and for Discograffiti's Patreon family, the Discograffiti Soldiers of Sound podcast. It'll be hosted by Rudy Fishman, and given his sociopathic tendencies, I'm sure it'll have a lunatic's take over the asylum edge to it. If all you want to do is show some love, there's now finally a $1 tier. Don't miss out. Become a recruit and get your personal personalized backstage pass for a buck and for the cheapskates homeless people and all the bums sponging off mom and dad don't care just join it's now completely free to join as a basic member and it'll be the only place you'll be able to get our upcoming lou barlow Corey hansen mark robinson comp metal machine muzak as well as the triple album rock opera El Farmony i created with joe kennedy as the mentally regarded and the ability to purchase one-off patreon episodes that's it back to the show 
as a manager, is that I know you currently manage the apples in stereo, right? Yes, I do still manage the apples. They are not active, but yes, I do manage their affairs. Is that an area of great focus for you now? Are there other bands? No. Occasionally what happens is I basically consult various mm-hmm. music projects occasionally that really need help with the basics of a business plan or somehow they found me and think that I might have some words of encouragement and direction that might help them. I basically consider myself a, a, a brainstormer that actually does produce in the end. But I'm not really that interested in helping musicians with their career right now, mainly because the industry has changed so much. I don't know that I add that much value to them. I can help someone figure out creatively so many different options. What type of engineer do you need for your recordings or what type of producer do you need based on the type of album you want to make? Your area of focus almost seems like an aesthetic roadmap of the E6 universe. It's so expansive. Let's go back to the beginning so I can see how you became intrinsically involved in this thing. Before doing so, I want to say I've seen the film twice. For anyone that has not seen the film, And I mean anyone. I don't care if you're a music fan or not a music fan. Don't care if you're an active listener of this podcast or not. You need to see this movie. I see tons of music documentaries, and there's something extra that you get with this that is going to light a fire under your own ass. It's impossible not to come away with this excited to further your own horizons in an artistic sense. And that is immediately apparent on watching the movie, the way that it kicks in with Robert Schneider's 55-second explanation of the E6 universe. (laughs) You know, I could seriously just praise it, add in infinitum. And by the way, you and I have spoken about this. I'm a filmmaker as well. And so I'm going to shy away from the super boring questions that you get asked everywhere else, because I don't care how much it costs and I don't care the schedule. Let's talk about the things that are really important about the film. Like, did you have an idea for this and, and then get going with it? Were you approached with it? Did you decide I'm going to do a documentary or did you find, holy shit, I'm doing a documentary now? Well, All of this, first off, is a complete labor of love. And I think that when people do see the Elephant Six Recording Company documentary, they'll see the love in the film. And that really, you know, is a direct beacon back to the director of the film, Chad Stockflat. If I remember correctly, he approached Robert about taping some Apple shows back in the aughts in I think it was 2007 or eight. If I'm not mistaken, he approached Robert about taping some Apple's shows, but I think it was really based on his love of, you know, not a coincidence, the Olivia Tremor Control. So Bill Doss was playing in the Apple's at that point. And he was a huge Olivia Tremor Control fan, if I'm not mistaken. I don't think he was literate on Elephant Six uh, at all at that point. I think he was just finding out about the Apples or had heard of them, but was really into his toe in the water was also Olivia's. And then because Bill was in the Apples at the time and the Olivia's were not performing, I think he just wanted to talk to Bill. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And I still want to talk to Bill. So um, I know a lot of people out there still want to talk to Bill. So nothing better than talking to Bill. 
For sure. You know, Robert made that connection, if you will, to Chad and and so forth. Robert Schneider is truth and creativity. I feel like Robert Schneider is an exact synthesis. It's like if, you know, the fly machine, the movie, The Fly. Yes. It's, It's like if Paul McCartney and John Nash from Beautiful Mind walked into the fly machine. He's a savant in a lot of ways. I mean, he has this natural gift of invitation and galvanization right yeah encouragement all of these things and again if i'm not mistaken because this is going back about 12 14 years which is how long chad has been in this world working on the film in one way or another whether he knew that it was the film at the time or not he started filming every time he could get a chance to do so and it turned into the film so you didn't know what you were entering into you thought like oh we should uh, offhandedly document some of this stuff were you in louisiana or georgia at the time at which some of these things were happening i was not at one point in time i not only thought of myself as an advocate for artists i was considering and took <laughs> a really hilarious adult education class on audio engineering and also interned at a crazy ridiculous recording studio in uh in rhode island so at one point i was really interested in recording and thought that that was maybe where i would end up so i was very interested in recording and in boston all of my friends were musicians so they were always recording and they all seemed to have some form of porta one recording device and so I was always around recording and I've always been around and I love being around recording. It's one of my favorite things to to witness is uh, recordings being made. It's just such a special thing that so few get to witness. Um, so I always felt honored by it and I always respected it. And so being introduced to the Elephant Six and dipping the toe in and finding out more and realizing, oh, they're recording all of this almost themselves and primarily one person. And at that point, Robert's name was being thrown around a lot. He still is, but you know, I didn't know him yet. I'd heard his name as kind of mythic figure at that point. I just was fascinated before I even got a chance to meet Robert. When did you cross paths with him? And I'm guessing that's the initial entry into that universe. Is that correct for you? Besides just watching shows, yeah. I mean, basically, Robert and the Apples were in a bit of a kerfuffle. Great word. A lot had happened for them already. They had had a a manager prior to me, didn't work out, and they had a really bad experience. And so I had been introduced to them by Spin Art Records as the unmanageable band, literally. They said to me, we have a band, you probably know of them, you know, but they're probably unmanageable, but, (laughs) you know, they they need some help. So maybe you guys could have a chat and maybe something happens. And I mean, I was psyched to just talk to Robert and to have a conversation with him about anything, though I didn't know him personally, obviously, at that point. This is in Lexington, Kentucky? He he was in Lexington at that point, yeah. He was there with just Hillary. He and Hillary had moved there because she wanted to be closer to her mom when they had their child, Max. My first conversations with Robert were really amazing. You know, I was, I'm in the same apartment that I was when I first spoke with him. And I remember my initial reaction. Here's this mile a minute talker that like I couldn't get any thoughts in edgewise at all. And I didn't want to be rude, but he just has so many thoughts and they 
come out so quickly that it's very, you know, especially trying to make a good impression. Like, you know, I was excited about the possibility of maybe managing a band that I thought could be and, of course, was very consequential. In terms of the unmanageability aspect, I'm guessing it's just the incredible amount of words that tumble out of his mouth because he's not shooting heroin. He's not throwing TVs at hotel windows. How are they unmanageable? Well, you have to understand also that, you know, there were two main people at SpinArt. One of them was the nice guy and one of them was the business guy. <laughs> and I I was always closer with the nice guy. Yeah. And the business guy was the one that was telling me this. Mm-hmm. And so hearing that the apples were unmanageable wasn't really scary to me. I had witnessed enough musicians at that point to know that to some people, all musicians are unmanageable. I didn't have a clue as to what exactly he meant. And I respected him for telling me up front that he thought that it was going to be a difficult challenge. There was a real, you know, demanding nature to what Robert desired. And what I realized was that just like a lot of these types of conversations and or relationships is that, you know, they grow and they ebb and they flow. And at that point, Robert had worked with SpinArt on a number of albums, was very thankful and grateful for what they had done together, but you know, didn't always agree on how things turned out. And this was interpreted as being difficult. In reality, as much credit as I give both Joel Morowitz and Jeff Price for finding the, the apples and working with really some amazing bands on their roster, a lot of them involved in some way with E6. Robert's a creative genius. (laughs) Like, Wait, let's clarify, because the word genius is bandied about like crazy, especially with music lovers. Everyone's a genius. But objectively, he's a genius. Yeah, I mean, I'm lucky that I feel like I've worked with a number of different musicians specifically that I think have that special quality. Robert has so many ideas and so many of them work, not just work creatively, but end up working, you know, in all the other ways. But getting back to the point about how to define genius and how I define it rather, because obviously everyone has a different take. My feeling about Robert as a genius is someone who has a vision for something that is so clear that it's already written in his head. So when he told me the first few times, oh, I've written a song. I was like, oh, great. Well, are you going to demo it? You know, do you have the lyrics written for it? Oh, I've got it in my head. And at first I'm like, okay, whatever. Sure you do. But as we're getting to know each other in those early days, he was so excited. I feel like maybe having a new ear like myself, even though I was still proving myself at the time, he just felt relieved and wanted to share with the world that he had written a pop song that he thought was going to be a hit. He would leave me messages daily, you know, prior to text messaging uh, being more the norm. Uh, He would say, oh, Dan, I just want to call and tell you, um, I just wrote a great song. It's going to be a hit and I'm just so excited about it. And then hang up. That would be a message that would happen so frequently. And then I would, you know, finally ask him, oh, have you 
actually record. Oh no, I haven't recorded it yet. Oh, I don't even have lyrics for it or yeah. all the lyrics yet. And I was like, okay, well get back to me when you, <laughs> when you do that. And then he would finally send me a demo of a, of a song and it would be like, wow, he's right. <laughs> it yeah. is as pop music goes specifically as psychedelic pop music goes, he just proved himself time and time again to just hit me over the head with one hit after the other. And one concept after the other, that was so inspiring to me. What's the true value? How do you define genius? You know, I, I don't know. What I do know is that Robert consistently has delivered inspiring creative projects and ideas to me on such a regular basis that I have no other way than to think of it as I'm being educated, yeah, yeah. which I, I love, by someone who just has all of these inspiring ideas. And to me, genius, I guess, is at least partially about the idea that someone that's listening is, is inspired, you know, is inspired by that idea, is inspired by that concept, is inspired by that song. That initial meeting that you had with he and Hillary, did you emerge from that as the manager or did you keep intermingling until it organically began? came that well actually robert and i had many um telephone calls prior to meeting in person again he had so much to get off his chest and he wanted me to have a complete picture of how how the band operated and where they were at and because he didn't want to jump into anything that was going to turn out like the last management scenario which he didn't enjoy at all. And it was a bit of a test because the label specifically is for the album Velocity of Sound is where I got involved with him um, and them. The label was jonesing for a new album and Robert had recorded the album, but because of the move to Lexington from Denver, the studio had been upset and he didn't have a place to mix it. He didn't have time to mix it. He had to go to Lexington. He had to get to Lexington. And so this was the first time where he, you know, had to entertain mixing an album or perhaps how to finish an album. And he wasn't quite able to figure that out. And I was basically being told by the label and him that we need to figure out a way to finish this album, both because Robert and Hillary need to do it to make income, to make sure that they could feed their burgeoning family and take care of their move across the country. But, you know, also because it's his creative baby. And of course, he's got a million ideas and he wants his records to be heard. Dan Kapelovitz is the only person running for Los Angeles District Attorney who was the features editor of Hustler Magazine, where he served as Larry Flint's editorial point man in his lawsuit against the Pentagon. Dan Kapelovitz is the only person running for Los Angeles District Attorney who has directed the experimental masterpiece Triple Fisher, described by Screen Slate as, quote, a cacophonous, queasy reduplication of the real that potently situates the Amy Fisher-Joey Botafuco affair within the realm of the Baudrillarian hyperreal, where representations proliferate so rapidly and with increasingly obscene detail as to thoroughly leave behind any concern with the grubby facts and what they might reveal about a lonely teenager and her world. Dan Kapelovitz is the only person running for Los Angeles District Attorney who is dedicated to ending mass incarceration and getting at the root of the crime problem. So crimes don't happen in the first place. If you believe in liberty, justice, and the American way, rhymes with for the hell of it, vote Kapelovitz. I'm Dan Kapelovitz, and I approve this message. 
also another sort of quagmire that was thrown into the mix was that the last time they had used an outside person, engineer, to produce and work on one of their albums, it had turned out really poorly to Robert's ears and the way that Robert which record uh, is that it was tone cell evolution love that record man yeah and it's a it's a great record Hillary Sidney's song on that silver chain yeah that's a jaw dropper for me she has such a such a beautiful voice it has a combination of both depth and uh naivete yes that's exactly it that song especially brings the depth into because she is such a high-pitched almost beat happening-esque childlike voice yeah to put it in a context like this where it feels like you're circling the hive on some kind of spiritual ecstasy almost is a mashup that the whole is definitely greater than the sum of its parts it's amazing you know the problems with that album were about the creative process it's so funny because that's the one that really sealed it for me that record track one especially seems so is almost a mission statement of pop perfection and there's nothing about that record that screams trouble in paradise it was a struggle and i think that you know sometimes albums are it work you know you don't know we don't know as fans what went into that and that's to its credit because behind the scenes it was not a fun time for robert people it, don't remember behind the scenes they only remember the artifact and strangely most of the great art that you and i probably both love were born of circumstances like this but that's not what gets remembered it's just like there's a lot of great directors who are insistent on making actors uncomfortable to get great takes not that it's necessary but apparently Roman Polanski during the shooting of Chinatown, Faye Dunaway says she had to go to the bathroom. And I believe this may be apocryphal that he demanded she urinate into a paper cup. Just stuff like that, where it's like trying to make people uncomfortable so they deliver great performances or things like that. At the end of the day, people are generally just remembering the film itself. Yeah, of course, of yeah, course. Yeah. But obviously, you know, when when Robert and I are talking about finishing the next record for him, and he's in this position where he really knows that he needs to hire someone to help him at this point, and he doesn't know where to turn. He doesn't know who to trust, right? The last person that was trusted with this hurt his trust in being able to make that decision again on his own. So that really was a troubling thing. And he, at that point with the label, they're not really syncing up a little bit. There's a lot of pressure from the label. So I don't think that Robert really trusted everything that they were pushing toward him, maybe options even of who might help him. And that's why I think they really came to me. The, the label was like, look, we don't know how to finish this album with our artists. You know, I think in the end, it wasn't Robert is trouble. It's more like, we don't know what we're doing to finish this record right now. Like at that point, they probably put out, you know, 20 or 30 records even. In this case, it was another real hiccup. They didn't know how to complete it. I've always been someone who's tried to complete things. To a fault, for God's sake. Oh, definitely to a fault. One of the engineers that I had worked with a lot, hearkening back to your series with Bob Mstanovich, is Bryce Goggin is a friend of mine, a colleague of mine, a, an esteemed producer and engineer, and he worked with Pavement. I was thinking of like, who could mix this album and who would do it justice and who would Robert trust? And then I said, well, listen, just hold on a second. Let me just give you a name. Well, I think we don't know each other that well. 
This is the first name I'm going to throw at you, but I think that he'd be worth investigating. And I said, Bryce Goggin. And he said, oh my God, I love Bryce Goggin's work. I would be thrilled. Bryce worked on pavement. So you're saying that you are the only manager really in the Apples and Stereo orbit for about approximately 15 years now, right? The last 23, 24 years. Yeah. And actually that ties into a question from one of the great all-time human beings who actually is a Patreon member of and an active listener of Discography, but also had involvement in the film, Patrick Tape Fleming. Patrick's a great guy. Absolutely. You know, really, really nice guy and consistently posts a series of under one minute long songs i've seen a, a few of those he is such a creative guy i i wish i knew him better i got to know him a little bit when his band opened for the apples for a short run of dates if i'm not mistaken back in the day but just a really creative guy and a real sweetheart because i don't know how he has this kind of instinct but whenever my spirits are at an ebb for whatever reason there's patrick with not even asked for phrases of consolation, but always there at the perfect time to say something supportive. And I really envy his spouse because I'm sure that that translates to a great marriage. But he asks in the Discography Soldiers of Sound Facebook group, what was the hardest moment as the Apple's manager? What was the most difficult moment you had? Wow. You know, there was only a couple times where Robert and I didn't agree on a track to take. And I'm trying to remember because most of those things went away pretty quickly. The thing about working with Robert and also having an opinion and also admittedly, like I'm new to the operation. This operation had been going. <laughs> they had made albums without me. You know, they didn't need me in that way. They could do it. If they had to do it again, they would do it. So, you know, I was trying to prove my value to him all the time. And I think in the beginning days, you know, I was a little more adamant about like, okay, let's try a different tact here. Let's try a different approach. I may get to an, an actual example, <laughs> but I'm trying to get back to it in my in my memory here. And I think that when I was more in the beginning stages, I was trying to push them in different directions. Did you manage Olivia Tremor Control too? I didn't manage the Olivia Tremor Control, no, but I had met with them on a couple of occasions and was about to begin managing them before Bill's passing. It was something I was really looking forward to, and it had gradually come to pass as I got to know Bill through the Apples. So I never managed the Olivia's. But in my mind, I was like, you have to ask John and Will and <laughs> the rest of them. They were at the point of ready to hire me. I was under the impression that I was like, okay, I'm about to start working on finishing the third album and working on tours with them and so forth. So I was really excited to do that. I might be aggrandizing a bit, like dreaming like, oh, they were about to say yes, maybe they weren't. <laughs> I, I don't know if uh, if you have an inside track on this, but Ulf Abrahamson, again, from the Discography Facebook group, he asks, will the Olivia Tremor Control's third album be finished slash released? And if so, when? Do you know anything about that? Because I know I've been waiting on the seat of my pants now for 12 years, mainly because that single in 2011 was just a jaw dropper, man. I don't have any real insight to that. It will okay. be finished. It absolutely will be finished. I have that guarantee from Robert. Do I need the guarantee from Will more so or no? <laughs> You know, uh, of course, I wouldn't. I, I mean, look, I'm I'm simply telling you what I can answer. Let's put it this way. All I have opinion wise is from Robert. 
And Robert believes that it'll be finished. So I agree. You should ask Will and you should ask the others whether they think it will be. I think because of the film and how the film is so, is such a positive force, I, I really think that there's like a lot of good karma coming from the film in, in a oh, lot of different directions. That's and the vibe. It really is. There's a feeling of togetherness and especially now, and I never try to put anything in any kind of broader political or social context because it's such a yawn fest at this point. You can't go anywhere without that happening. But now, especially right this second sort of in the world, it's a beacon of much needed fresh air in a very suffocating environment. Let's put it this way. I, along with everyone else, would do anything Thing to help make sure that this album comes out in the best possible way, in the most timely way possible. There's not much I can do at this point. Will, if you're listening and need help with something, let me know. I mean, I would- Me too. So I'll even send you a pizza. I'll come over and cook for you. <laughs> whatever it fucking takes. I volunteer my services in whatever ways it's needed. Oh, hi, Dave again. I got to tell you about the next tier. As a lieutenant, you get an ad-free, substantially elongated director's cut of every episode. And you'll be getting the shows an entire week early from now on. And now back to our expertly crafted program. I think, you know, the film and the record, you know, they go hand in hand in so many ways. And I just know that the love that we all have for Bill Doss specifically, that everyone needed some time to kind of get their heads together about what happened to their friend and to, to deal with it a bit. And I, I think that now, and especially again, I think part of the film's beauty, not necessarily toward the fans, but toward the core members of, of the E6 world. It's like a little bit of a, you know, an olive branch to healing. I think seeing their compatriot on screen and getting to think about him and that band again. <laughs> Thank God you, there's footage there of the Sun Ra performance. Yeah. That yeah. really is a much needed scene in the film. Yeah. Every time they played that, I remember the memorial when they played it and it was just being there was, it was just a beautiful moment. I will forever remember that song and that performance and my friend Bill. Life is just too much. I mean, I probably spoke with him no more than 10 minutes and had a very clear understanding of the type of person he is, which I don't even feel like I needed that time to have a, an understanding of it. Because some people, you can look at their faces and know exactly the kind of person that they are in their heart. And he's definitely one of those. There's this phrase I heard a long time ago, and I'm probably paraphrasing it, that you have the face you're born with until you're 40 and then the face you've earned after you're mm. 40. He seems like he didn't have a defensive bone in his body, just let life wash over him. He came across as a very sincere and humble creative force. I was always interested in hearing what he had to say because he was very thoughtful and so humble. You know, it, it was just always a pleasant conversation with him. There was just something about him. He had, I don't know, the fiery red hair and maybe the sunny disposition of, uh, I know it wasn't all that for him. It's worthy of noting too, that I kept up with everything he did and his solo efforts were incredible. I mean, if I'm to be nerdily reductive about things, I can say that to me, as a catch-all for Elephant Six, the Neutral Milk Hotel record is usually singled out as the Rosetta Stone, but I always, from the beginning, felt it to be Dusk. Yeah. To me, that is the album that could swallow all the other Elephant Six records into it and you know, still retain its own identity 
because it seems to have every shade of all the Sonics that were utilized, and it has everything in it, like the color white. Yeah, I mean, there's so many criminally underrated Elephant Six albums that I think could fall into that pantheon of being the best Elephant Six record. Well, okay, let's talk about those bands then. That's a great thing that you bring that up. Please do me a favor and inform me because I'm going to be honest with you. I'm so familiar with all the big, quote unquote, Elephant Six bands. The first thing I did after I watched your incredible film is I listened to pretty much everything the Minders had done because it's a band that had passed me by at that time. And I love them. You know, because this whole time Pavement's been on tour, I've been thinking, you know, they sound great. And there's, there's this, you know, new person in the band who seems to really be kicking ass. Had no idea about backstory even so there's all these other bands marshmallow coast durables reading adam claire's endless endless he opened my eyes to a lot of stuff that i was oh that was okay i get it the ones that i always gravitate toward are you know more of the household name because i know them better too like i you know i know elf power and i know circulatory system and i know bulis and i love i love bulis so much i mean almost everything they put out i absolutely adore those are not you know necessarily new things to you i know well actually we have a question from the disco graffiti facebook group again from alf abrahamson who is incredibly inquisitive once the subject of you being interviewed came up but he wrote i don't know if daniel can talk about this but i'd like to know a bit more about julian coster wow well i wouldn't claim to know julian really well but I agree with Ulf that Julian is a fascinating guy. The music tapes, I, I just saw the music tapes two weeks ago, I think it was, at the Poussin Rouge here in, in New York City. And Robbie delivered an incredible set. And I know there's a new album, and I just highly recommend everyone check out the music tapes for sure. Music tapes feels really kitchen sink. It almost feels like OTC hold back in comparison. That's interesting. I... <sighs> That's the so I got seeing them open for OTC in 95. I mean, Julian's like no one else. So, you know, I think he often gets the description of a man child because he has such a childlike naivete that is so beautiful and charming and believing in the world and positive. Julian deserves more credit, I think, for his work specifically because it is very, very deep and very, very meaningful. And if there's a criticism of it, you know, from what I can tell is that sometimes it gets kind of thrown off as in a bad way naivete, when to me, it's an incredible gift to have this charm and this inquisitive nature. And he's a very deep individual, very learned. You know, he doesn't do a lot of press. Is but that my choice? That's a good question. I think a lot of Elephant Six is a little, though there's this film, I think part of the film being made and, and, and how it was made was it was able to kind of thread the needle of getting people to talk. And I would have liked to have seen more of Julian. Seems like he plays a bigger role than is led on by the film, but you can't have a four hour film. Well, you could, but well, yeah, let's have a four hour version, please. 
Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's just say there was a four-hour version of the film. I would be so interested in an almost democratic flattening of the field wherein all of the bands got the exact same amount of time for the real nerdy obsessives. I think the film is perfect as is. I kind of just want to see more. This question from the Facebook group from Richard Wilson Avina, he asked, were there ever adult beverages or illicit substances used to record, which seems about as obvious as is humanly possible what the answer would be. But I'm curious the uh, the equation of influence. And even if we're just talking about smoking some weed, what role did drugs play as a creative aid? I, I don't think that I'm saying anything new when I say they played a role. You know, there's a reason why a lot of these albums are psychedelic masterpieces. Yeah. Whether they realized it or not, at the time, they were trying to perform what was going on in their heads. But are they smoking weed or are they allowing psychedelics to be part of the mixing process? Oh, there's definitely psychedelics and weed and there's all kinds of stuff. They can be a tool. And to some people, they are a tool. The beauty of the Elephant Six, to me at least, was that they're all in this friendly competition to create the best record ever. And whatever that is in their heads... Yeah. And they were in, you know, this sort of like, I'm going to make a better record than you. And, uh, you know, and then I'm going to love your record, too. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly. And then I'm going to play your record on tour. And then you're going to play mine as well. And we're going to play together. And then we're all going to be a family afterwards. And, you know, there's all the things that go along with that. There's love. There's hate. There's jealousy. There's drugs. Now, did you get the Apples and Stereo on Colbert? Did you set that up? How did that work? I mean, how lucky am I that I get to call people and email people and text people now and say like, oh, I have a demo from Robert Schneider that no one's ever heard that you're going to flip out on. Feel free to add me to that network of people. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm just super lucky to have that opportunity. And what happened with Colbert was just, again, one of these once in a lifetime situations. So Robert had been a huge fan of the Colbert rapport. We had been talking about the episodes together. Like, had you seen the latest one? You know, he's like so excited whenever Robert gets excited. It's a pleasure to be in that conversation. Yeah. And that happens often. It's 2006, 2007, somewhere in there. And at one point he calls me up. He's like, I wrote a song for Stephen Colbert. So he sent me an MP3 and, you know, I was I was hoping the quality was good enough and all that stuff. But I was just like, this is hilarious. At the time we were working on New Magnetic Wonder. We had an incredible publicist who is still out there, Alison Elbel. And she said something like, you do realize that the person sitting next to me represents Stephen Colbert, right? They get the song on Wednesday. On Thursday, Stephen gets the song. On Friday morning, they have a production meeting. And he comes into the meeting, according to the writers that I now know, they say he was singing his song walking in the door. That's great. That's awesome. And on Monday (laughs) of the next week, they had emailed me to say, would Robert play on the TV show? So less than a week from delivering a song that was made for certainly one of the most popular people uh, of our time period, certainly in that world. To me, it still is one of the most fun and amazing little coincidences that could ever occur. And then for him to then meet him when we got to the show and to find out that he was a big Neutral Milk Hotel fan, a big Apples fan, a big Elephant Six fan. 
He was singing Neutral Milk Hotel songs. Is this right at the same time where Elijah Wood comes on board and inks a deal? Elijah had already been on board. And this so. is another link because his company, SpectraVision, Elijah Wood was the producer on a film that is still in development right now of mine called Bad Vibes. Robert Schneider was invited to play on the Colbert Report at the end of year grand finale show, it would turn out. So it's about time for the show to start. The audience has been let into the room they're seated and they call for places and so robert is there and he's holding his guitar and so forth he's like dan do you think that um uh there's time for me to go out and have a little puff nice and i'm like you know in my head i'm like okay very quickly dan make a quick decision that isn't going to like change the course you know in my head like why are you doing this now like shouldn't you have done this already like it started like they're locked the doors against my better judgment i thought you know what if i say no he might freak out because it's a very pressure-packed thing to be knowing that you're taping tv and if that's what he needed to do that's what he needed to do and i'm his manager so i better take care of my client so if he needs to do it that's what he needs to do that's what i'm going to help him do so i said oh no there's no problem at all let's go but we have to do it right now so i grab him and we run out the exit door and the uh security guard is kind of looking at us quizzically i said we'll be right back don't worry and so we walk like 50 paces away from the door so we can have a little puff anyway long story short I was able to rush him back into the room right on time for his cue to start singing the song, Stephen Stephen, or the Colbert Report, and all worked out in the most beautiful, majestic way. Yes, in perfect Elephant Six fashion, too. So exactly how does Elijah Wood get pulled into the fold? Is it him reaching out to you guys, or did somebody seek him to become involved? Elijah is such a super awesome dude. Totally down to earth. He spent a lot of his time in Austin. And I think it was in 2001, during Velocity of Sound, my first album with the Apples that we were promoting, he came up to me and said, hi, I'm, you know, I'm Elijah. I understand you're the, the Apples manager. Um, I'd really like to meet the band. And I thought, how cool is that? So an introduction occurred. And of course, he's so nice and Robert's so nice and the Apples are so, I mean, everyone in the band and the Apples is super awesome, nice person. So it's not crazy to think they're going to get along. At the time, I didn't, I didn't really know much about Elijah and I had not seen any of his films, including the biggest ones. I was just blissfully ignorant, really. But he was just a very charming guy. I don't yeah. really give a shit about that stuff. It didn't matter. He was a fan of music and yeah, yeah, that was exactly. all it took, you know? So they had met and they, you know, it was, of course, it's South by Southwest. So it was really busy and all they had time for is to have a quick chat. And, and then it was off to the races for us and for him. Because he had a lot of bands that he wanted to check out. And the Apples were very busy promoting their album. He didn't have a label. He just was a music fan. Down the road, Robert had decided and the band had decided as a collective that they were not really that interested in doing another uh, record with Spin Art. And they wanted to make a change. We definitely had a, a number of interested parties for what would end up being New Magnetic Wonder. Just investigating, you know, all the different options. What's going to be the best option? I mean, he talked about the band. He did interviews and mentioned them. He directed his first music video, Energy, our biggest song. Yeah, it's you know? so cool. I mean, he brought in a whole team 
to help us because we had a very small budget. So we had to make it work somehow. And obviously he had a vision and he wanted to make it work too, because it was his first splash into it. You know, it ended up being a long-term relationship with him working and helping us to market the next record as well. And starring in the dance floor video and subsequent sidebar uh, uh, little video as well. And I'm really proud of that, that sort of duo dance floor uh, tandem video that we ended up releasing. He's also got a similar comparable infectious passion that Robert has about cultural things that really do it for him. I've had so many conversations like going into rabbit holes with him where he gets excited like a little kid, just like I do, just like everyone I know does about the newest things he's, he's coming across. So when you become a major, you get yet another show on Wednesday. Either Discography's The Top Ten, our Buried Treasure show, Rock Cousteau, our Slag Off show, Queasy Listening, or exclusive limited series like The Private Press with Paul Major. And if you've got no financial worries to speak of, keep in mind that some of the higher Patreon tiers allow you to actually advertise on the show, choose the bands we cover, or even some of the guests we get. For the price of a cup of coffee a week, you can ensure my family's fed, build a music library that'll be the envy of your block, and connect to a thriving community of music maniacs all at the same time. Don't risk feeling badly about yourself by not giving. Patreon.com slash Discograffiti. Once again, that's Patreon.com slash Discograffiti. I want to ask one more question. This is actually from the Elephant Six Enthusiast Facebook group that I thought was a good question because in the film, there is mention of possibly the logo that was designed being overexposed toward the end and overutilized. However, this was a question that I thought rang counter to it in a way that professes its undeniable dying love for the community. Jamie Starr from the group wrote, something I wonder myself, was the E6 logo underused? Context, in the late 90s, early 2000s, I would buy any CD with the Wu-Tang logo on it. I had hundreds. I was in Apple's Nutrimic Hotel, a camera control fan at the time, but it's taken me 25 years to catch up on all the other astonishing bands. It's wonderful now, thanks to great labels like Cloud, Orange Twin, HHBTM, etc., to be able to buy incredible records by the gerbils, great Lakes, Marshmallow Coast, Ladybug, Dressy Bessie, The Minders, The High Watermarks, etc., etc. I love them all and wonder how I missed them at the time. Maybe that logo could have helped people like me find the records easier, or was the confusion part of the attraction? It was so mysterious, I couldn't even work out who was part of it. It's a long question, but I think with regard to how it kind of circles around the documentary and one of the points it makes, I thought a germane one. I don't think they fostered on purpose this sort of mystery, but because so many important and interesting releases came out on there and there was no infrastructure for the help and sick people were like, well, how do we contact them? You know, like as, as a bands that were, uh, you know, that were attuned to it, we're wondering like, well, I want to be on Elephant Six. It's such a fun thing in a way because I don't think that was the intention that they like were trying to be mysterious. On the other hand, there was a benefit to it being mysterious. Really want to thank you, man. You know, all the disparate projects that you get embroiled in, certainly the one thing that ties them all together is they're all cool. So you get that thing that gets under your skin and you can't shake it and you got to go after it. So you're a man after my own heart. And I had a great time. This is a great conversation, man. I had, I had a great time chatting with you too. 
to. And I think the the key word to describe my decision-making process is, yes, I'm embroiled. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) You know, I mean, if you're anything like me, you get that last minute pit in your stomach because you know you're about to go on a major roller coaster ride, getting involved with a whole scene or getting involved with a bunch of people. And then it happens. And it's the greatest thing in the world. I appreciate being allowed to join in in the merriment. Thanks so much. It's been fun. And I really look forward to the uh, other episodes that you're uh, putting together. It's going to be a doozy. I know I can feel it in the bowels of my scrotum. I hope that makes it to air. I want to hear what the bowels of your scrotum sound like. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully you mean just the words. Yeah, maybe actually I take that back. Yeah, (laughs) that's making it to air too. Uh, (laughs) All right, that about does it. Stay tuned because next week we've got part two of our epic Mark Robinson interview. This time he's joined by special guest Jenny Toomey as the two reunite over an epic discussion of the greatest indie supergroup of all time, Grenadine. A heartfelt discography thanks goes out to my beautiful wife and son, Jen and Mason, Dan Ephraim, the Elephant Six Recording Company, both the documentary itself and the label, Rudy Fishman, my incredibly loyal fans, and especially the entire Patreon community, the Soldiers of Sound. I love every last one of you, and this show would not exist without you, my friends. Speaking of friends, it's high time for some new ones. They're in our Facebook group, Discography Soldiers of Sound. That's the best way to find out what's coming up on the show, but there's a hell of a lot more. You get recaps of the day in music history, the ability to pitch questions to guests, polls that put you in the driver's seat on guest and band decisions, and access to a thriving creative hub if you're looking for a collaborator. So make sure you don't miss out. You can find the link to the Discography Soldiers of Sound Facebook page right there in the show notes. And if you don't mess with the Zuck, no sweat. Just email me at info at discography.com and I'll keep you in the loop. So now that it's done and you want more, another way to dive even deeper into the Gen X flag wavers of 1990s indie alternative gold is to leap headfirst into the David Paho series, including the man himself rating Slint's discography. That's episodes 94 to 101. No Ages Randy Randall rating the Jesus Lizard. That's 70 and 71. My interview with No Ages Randy Randall. That's episode 88. The Bob Nastanovich rates Pavement series from 49 to 58 nirvana episode 30 the replacements with bob Mayer 28 and 29 and number 18 the pixies join us during the upcoming week for discography's week-long deep dive Here's what's up this week. This Sunday, our $5 private tier can expect another episode of the brand new Discography Soldiers of Sound podcast. And then on Tuesday, all majors and up are going to get a real treat. A five-minute video from the upcoming Michelle Phillips interview that has to be the most emotionally moving moment in Discography history. And of course, be sure to mark your calendars, because next Friday, January 19th, 2024, we're coming at you with Mark Robinson and Jenny Toomey's Grenadine Reunion. Trust me, you're not going to want to miss it. And so, from now till then, don't let our youth go to waste, lads and ladies. It's Discography! Graffiti!